Hello, I'm Emily Grace, and welcome to the Stages podcast of Bernstein Private Wealth Management. Life throws lots of challenges at us. We're here to analyze them. Having helped families prioritize what makes money meaningful for them and then invest for that purpose for close to 20 years now, I've seen people through countless markets and life events. And while every market is different, what remains constant is the need for guidance and advice through the uncertainty. Helping people navigate the markets and introducing them to some of the smartest investment minds and experts in other fields, whatever the stage in their life, is a real honor. If you or someone you know would like advice or an introduction to my guest, you can reach me at emily.grace at bernstein.com. Today, I've invited Jennifer Curtis, partner in the Corporate Finance, M&A, and Private Equity Transactions Group at Winston & Strawn to join me on the stage. Jen helps clients through many business transactions, including guiding private equity funds and both public and private companies during acquisitions and sales. Jen joins us today just having completed one of the biggest life stages of us many face, the college application process for her eldest child. So she's here to discuss what happens behind the scenes of a deal and how she helps keep her clients secure through it all. Jen, thanks for joining me. Happy to be here. Thank you for having me. So what made you decide to enter the world of, of mergers and acquisitions and enter it from the legal side? So when I was in law school, the one thing that they don't teach you in law school is transactional work as a general proposition. It, everything you learn in law school sort of comes at you from a litig litigation perspective. And so I think when you decide to go to law school, you envision, your, envision yourself in a courtroom being a litigator. And um, when I did my first job uh, after my first year of law school, I was a clerk in a court in um, New York State Court. Okay. And I, the judge was lovely and kind, but he was in control of his courtroom and he would chastise the attorneys from time to time. And lovely. I was, you know, 23 years old and I said, I don't want to spend the rest of my life getting yelled at, right? Um, so I didn't really think litigation was for me. The other thing I didn't think I didn't like about litigation was it's how adversarial it is. Okay. And I thought it would be a stressful kind of life to constantly be butting heads with somebody. And do you find that that's not true in the M&A world? So you, when you're an M&A lawyer, you, your job is to get a deal done. Okay. So as much as your client and the other side have differing viewpoints, um, at the end of the day, you're not doing your job if you can't figure out if a the way deal falls apart. to get a deal done. Okay. So, and the lawyer on the other side obviously has the same goal. So as much as you want to advocate for your client, if, if your viewpoint is I have to win every point or I'm going to walk away from the deal, you're doing your client a disservice. So you have to find sometimes creative solutions or compromises with the input of your client, obviously. Of course. Um, but, but explaining the risk allocation on a particular issue and trying to get your client comfortable to the extent possible with assuming more risk than they otherwise would have liked to in a perfect world in order to get a deal done. Oh my goodness, this sounds exactly like what I do, right? <laughs> if you want to make a lot of money, you might have to take more risk. Right. Exactly <laughs> so right. You want to get the deal done, you might have to take more risk. Exactly right. And and from my perspective, you know, if you end up at a middle of the road 
transaction, which is 50% buyer favorable and 50% yes. seller favorable, that's a good deal. That's a win. Mm-hmm. That's a win. Now, let's set the scene. Okay. Okay. You're in the home stretch of a deal. You've been working on it for how long? Three months. I'd for say. three months. So, like, what does it look like when you come into that home stretch? What What are sides thinking? What What still has to be done? So you have you always have your main transaction document, right? Your purchase agreement, yeah. merger agreement, stock purchase agreement, whatever it is, and that's your main transaction document. And then you're negotiating all the ancillary agreements as well at the same time, whether it's an employment agreement or a transition services agreement, an escrow agreement, whatever the case may be. And then you have other conditions to closing that have to be satisfied in order for the parties to be required to close. Um, And so you're kind of working full speed on all of those things at the same time, assuming you're doing a simultaneous sign and close. Yes. Obviously, there are transactions that are structured with an intervening period between signing and closing. But if you're doing a simultaneous sign and close, you're negotiating the deal documents, you're trying to get whatever third party or governmental consents and approvals that you need, um, landlord consents, you're deal- yes. dealing with your deal financing if you're on the buy side. Um, so it's like all that coordination has to come together. And what what's that last, because I've seen deals where there are things being changed sort of hours before. Right. Right? Like, is that common yes. or? Yes. So, so that doesn't phase you. No, no, no. That's, you never have like, you know, all your deal documents tied <laughs> up with a pretty bow and set aside, and then you're just waiting for, you or know, else everybody would sign it or something. <laughs> exactly. You're almost always working up to the 11th to the deadline to get it done. Um, and then it, when it comes together, that's when you close. How often have you seen a deal fall apart in that 11th hour? Not usually in the 11th um, I've seen deals fall apart early on. I've seen deals fall apart when you feel like you're close to done. Okay. But never in that 11th hour. And that people just can't come to that final point together. Right. And I th- and sometimes, I, you know, I think it depends on, for example, you may have a reluctant seller. Yeah. So you're negotiating and you're negotiating and you think you're going to get through this issue and you, you're the buyer and you have in the back of your mind, well, if they won't agree with this point, here's our fallback position. And you're trying to say, how, how good can we make it be for us knowing that the seller feels strongly about this? And sometimes the seller just has had it. Just can't, can't do it. Because how much would you say of the deal is psychological versus just sort of cold, hard numbers and facts? I think that depends on who your seller is and who your buyer is. So when you're working with a founder, whether you're representing the founder yes. on a sell-side transaction or you're representing the buyer, this is the founder's baby, yes. right? This is usually a company that they started from nothing and grew over a period of years, and they're finally going to have a liquidity event, and it's sort of the culmination of their life's work. Yes. And so you can only imagine that that becomes very right. emotional. They're, they're selling a child. And they're then... But it's not illegal. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) But but it is. It's their baby. But also, speaking of children, they're now also thinking about what are they going to do with this money? How can they set up their children and their grandchildren? And this is not only the culmination of their life's work, but very often they're looking at how are they providing for the next generation. And how much do you help the business owners think through sort of what that about life after the deal closes? Like, are there things that they should be thinking about beforehand? And 
you know, I guess on both the buyer and the seller side, right? How do, how do, what role do you play or how do, how do you help them think about that? So I don't personally do any estate planning yes. type stuff. Um, but you know, when you structure a transaction, one of the most important things um, in structuring is ensuring you get the best tax treatment right, possible. Right, after tax deal. Exactly. Um, and then the other piece of it is what is, if you're representing a seller, what is their potential exposure after the deal closes? So to the extent that the buyer has a right to come back to the seller and seek indemnification for certain liabilities that may arise after the closing, um, what, it, what is their exposure? Is there a cap on their exposure? Is there a period of time after which they can stop looking over their shoulder? Yes. Um, is there no exposure? Do they want to take the hardest line possible and say, I'm done, and see if a buyer will live with that in a competitive auction, for example? Sometimes they buyers might. will. They might. Um, but that's the other thing that sellers and especially founders worry about is, I'm going to do all of this estate planning, <laughs> right? Yes. What happens when they come back to me three years from now? Right. What, what is that going to look like, right. and how will that unravel right. part of the deal? Because that's something that you know we've worked on a lot right, is helping people sure. before the transaction right. figure out in concert with, you know, you on the deal side and then the T&E attorney right. on the sort of planning legal side, right. but helping figure out sort of how much do you need for for the next deal, what can go into trust for kids or what can go into charity. And I guess, do you find that there's a psychological difference to, we talked, you talked a little bit about the psychological side of sort of a founder selling and how that can be difficult. Do you find it's different if it's their first deal versus their third deal? Right, like if yes. it's the third company they founded, does it then become a little bit more transactional to them or do you um, find that I that think stays there's, the same? There's still a, an amount of emotion tied to it, but they, they understand the process better and so they don't get as emotional about it. So for example, the first time as a seller, you're going through the due diligence process. Yes. Every single seller complains to you as sell-side counsel. The buyer and the buyer's counsel, they're asking me for all this information and all these materials, and I've given them everything I have. And if they want all of what they're really asking for, I'm going to have to go back and dig through file cabinets that are right, five, five years, years old. Yes. And you know, they all get mad at that, yes. right? <laughs> and then... There is a certain amount of um, educating that you have to do to say this is a purchase agreement and how it works. These are reps and warranties. They have to be true. Uh, if they're not, you know, there's going to be a breach of rep claim. Yes. You're going to have to stand behind that. And you get into that conversation of what their post-closing liability looks like. Once they've been through the process and they understand the mechanics of the deal. Yes those things are not as surprising. Right, they they know that they're gonna have to do it and maybe they've kept better records knowing that that right. could be on the other side of exactly. it. Exactly. Do you find, how much have has this industry changed in the last you know, 10, 20 years, especially with the advent of sort of digital and social media and you know, who has the rights to what and then you know, record keeping and how has that, that changed it? And have right. you ever seen like social media blow up a deal? Um, I've never seen social media blow up a deal. I, I think that there are always leaks um, yes. in, in whatever form they take and forever, you know, for whatever period of time, yes. whether, you know. Um, but uh, but the, I think what really changes is because of the digital world is there's a significant amount of focus on data privacy and security yes. in any kind of transaction. Um, 
and um, you know intellectual property related um, rights as well. And, and in addition, you know anything healthcare related is there's HIPAA and high tech and all of this legislation that expands protected health information rights and the like. So yes. it's more of a, the advent of developments in law that need to be addressed as these digital issues come into right, play. start to arise. And I guess exactly. a lot of the time there must be, you know, who owns the algorithm. Right. right? Well, who owns everything? Who owns the intellectual property? Is it registered with the Patent and trade, Trademark Office? Who owns the domain name? Yes. Um, how do you transfer email addresses and mobile phone numbers and, you know, all of that. Um, so there are things that you have to think about, but they're not significant issues in a deal unless you are, you know, if you're in payment processing, if yes. you're doing a deal in the payment processing space, for example, then obviously that kind of um, protected information becomes more scary than if you're in other industries and you don't, you know, you don't face consumers directly or you don't have consumer information. Right. How much do you think that the public understands about sort of these deals that are happening? And, you know, when you hear, you know, these deals that are falling apart or, you know, when, you know, IPOs or deals or anything that, like, how much do you think people understand and how do you think, should they understand more? Um, I, I don't think the public in general understands. I think the, the public probably understands, oh, there's a merger. So yes. two companies are coming together. Okay. But in terms of what does that mean? Is it a public company or a private company? Um, is it what kind of acquisition is it? What does it mean after the closing of the, what is a closing? Right. What does it mean after the closing of the deal, given a particular structure? Who's the new employer if a company is acquired? You know, if you're right. an employee of a company that's being acquired, what are your benefit benefit plans going to look like? Yes. Um, what are your, you know, four years of service? Plan? Yes, credit for um, years of service, vacation pay, you know, bonus plan. How is that all impacted? And and I don't think people know that. And that's really the the practical for the people who aren't in the M and A space. Yes. But if you work for a company, chances are at some point or another it'll be acquired. What does that mean for you? And I think companies are very good about communicating that yes. to their employee base. Um, They've probably gotten better at it. Yes. I mean, it's one of the things you do right before a closing, typically, is you have a presentation to the employees who may not have previously been in the loop. Yes. And you say, this is what this means for you. And I'm guessing, is it usually the employment lawyers who would be working on that? Or would that be something that you would help advise them on? Um, both. Um, but it's usually something that's communicated by the business people yeah. with preparation from us and, and Labor and Employment Council. Do you well. think consumers should care? Like, if a company that I do business with is acquired? So I think, think it depends, right? Because if a company is acquired and it creates more synergies, yes. then maybe you know prices can go down. Um, but otherwise, does it really matter to you who owns right, the company the that company? you're buying your detergent from? Right. Or exactly. And and should they care if their company is you know if a company you interface with is owned by a strategic buyer or a private equity fund? Probably not. Other than I guess. There's so much these these days around sort of like purpose-driven investment and ESG yes. and companies that are doing well and doing good. And so we probably see more and more sort of smaller companies that have, because they're starting 
from that position. Right. Right. And then there may be sort of larger companies that are looking to go that way. Yes. So how how do you think about that in your role and position? And is that someplace that you're seeing focus in your so it's not, it's not so much in my practice. I think that there are a lot of private equity funds that are establishing um, impact funds. Yes. Um, I don't do fund formation, but that's definitely something that I'm seeing more and more of. And so, but you don't have somebody who comes to you and says, I want to do a deal and we're doing it because we're trying to sort of improve our ESG rep or something like that's not something that you're seeing yet. That's not something. No, I'm, okay. I haven't seen that. Maybe that'll be in the roaring 20s. Maybe, there you go. <laughs> maybe, that's, maybe that's what's to come. Um, so besides just saying Jen Curtis at Winston Strawn, when somebody is thinking about hiring an attorney, Right. What should they what should they be thinking about? What questions should they be asking? What should they care about? You know, a business owner, right? Built this business from the ground up and they're really saying who's going to represent my needs. How should they think about that? So as much as and I think a lot of especially founder owned companies do this, as much as you want to hire your lawyer that you've been using for years for a variety of other things, wills and estates. Yes. Real estate, whatever. Right, your general practitioner. Right. You need somebody who does deals for a living. Um, I can't tell you how many times I've been on a buyer and, uh, you know, the seller hired his real estate counsel or, or some litigator he used in some litigation in the past. Do you smile? And I, but I say, I, I, oh, <laughs> Actually, you, it probably makes your job more difficult. It does so. make my job more difficult. But I'll say, uh, oh, do you want to have a call tomorrow? And the lawyer will say, well, I'm in court tomorrow. And I'll be like, you're in court. How can, how can you be in court? What are you doing, doing in court? Deals, right? <laughs> um, and, and it does make it much more difficult. And I also think, I feel strongly that the client of that lawyer, as good of a litigator as they may or may be, or as good of a real estate lawyer as they may be, um, they're doing their client a disservice by accepting that representation and not really being um, an expert in the field. And... And you find that they can either make things more difficult because they don't understand the nuances of, of transactional like The questions work. that need to get asked and, and what needs so to get done. And so sometimes they're, you know, sometimes, quite frankly, they'll get their client another deal, a, a better deal, because they're in so insistent on a point that makes no sense from a deal perspective that the buyer has to say, all right, they're not caving on this. We're going to have to give them something on yes. this, right? So I guess sometimes it can be better. Sometimes it works out. Right. But overall, it slows things down. It. I don't believe they're giving um, their clients great representation. I would never do a trans. I would never do a deal where I didn't feel confident that I was giving the best possible representation yes. I could give. So I think, and, and then there's m more sort of, you, you can even drill down. Okay, so now you hire a, a deal lawyer. Yes. Um, if you're taking on a, an investment or you're being acquired by a private equity fund, does this person understand what market is, right? Mm -hmm. Does does the, the deal lawyer, do they do only strategic deals where one company buys another company, or have they done a deal across the table from a financial buyer, and do they understand the nuances of that kind of transaction? And, um, and, and it's for anybody, do they know the market? Do they know the right metrics that will get their client a good deal? And I was going to say, how important is it that um, that the lawyer understands the particular industry 
in which the deal is being done. That is less important unless it's a highly regulated industry. So if you're doing, again, using healthcare as an example. Yes. Um, I've done a number of healthcare deals. I would not do that deal without the help of my healthcare partner. Right, your healthcare um, That You need to, you know, it's tricky, right? Medicare and Medicaid and, and all of the... And different know, states. and Different states, exactly right. Um, you really can, um, it can be... A, a, travesty if you yes. get that wrong um and and so you I, again i wouldn't represent somebody where i don't feel confident yes. that i'm giving them the best possible representation sometimes you're you need a deal lawyer but you need specialists who really know what they're doing in the industry and do you think are there particular questions that somebody should be asking as they're looking for their lawyer right because if you think about it it's sort of Easy, especially if it's not somebody who just says, I wouldn't do a deal where I don't feel like I can be right. adding value. And there are some people who believe they can add value on everything. Right. True. You know, so I don't True. I don't want to say that the person's a bad person, you know, right. but they truly believe that they can handle whatever comes at them and if they can't, they'll figure it out. Right. Is there are there ways that people can sort of suss out what I, I think you wanna ask a potential attorney that you're going to hire, um, what is your experience with this kind of transaction? Okay. And so maybe depending on the industry, if it's important that they have a history in that industry, you know, there's different industries that have different issues. Yes. Um, not just regulatory, but for example, if you're doing a logistics business, right, or you're doing a logistics deal, it, very common you have these misclassification of employee, independent contractor issues. Okay. It's just sort of part of the model of that business. So what do you know about those misclassification issues? So if so, it can be industry specific if there are specific nuances right, to within really know that how to industry. Dig into it. But then, you know, have you done a deal across the table from a private equity fund or I'm taking on a VC, you know, what, what's your experience with good growth equity investment? Yes. Um, and, and test out their market knowledge of deals of that size in that space um, because the more experience somebody has the better served you'll be as a client yeah. and when you say sort of mischaracterization of sort of position or of employee how is it common to walk into a deal and you know in the beginning phases and find out that everything is just a real mess or do you typically find that by the time you're involved things are pretty cleaned up Sometimes it's a mess. Yes. Um, ideally, you're getting involved at a point where the seller has lined, you know, put their ducks in a row, yes. and they've uh, hired a banker, and they have the structure set up because their accountants weighed in or their estate planning lawyers weighed in. Yes. But very often, you, uh, I just did a deal where they actually had an auction, and their auction draft of the purchase agreement that we were bidding on made clear they had not done that work. Oh, no. And so, you know, we said, here's what our price is, assuming this and that is going to be done, and this is a subsidiary of that, and this company is in, but this company is out. And um, it, it, the deal got done, it's right, fine. But, but it but took it more. makes it more difficult. More billable hours. <laughs> True. <laughs> True. More billable hours. So now what, what keeps you up at night? Um... Just sometimes I, you know, you, you, I have flashes of did that get did that get reflected in the agreement right? I want to make that I want to take one more look at that language. It's a really important issue, and 
I just, before it goes out, I just, you know, I'll wake up at night and I'll be like, I got to read that again in the morning because yeah. did it, did it say this? Did it really cover that issue? So I get very tied up in making sure three years from now when there's a claim, everything is everything accounted is for super crystal clear. So how much of the agreement is sort of boilerplate and how much of it is really right. We're saying like, did that get included in there? Right. right. Like how much is sort of already in there versus needs to be tweaked. And there's really reason to, to wonder. So, so it really depends on the deal um, and how unique uh, a particular deal is or how much it sort of varies from the customary structure. Um, typically, an agreement, a purchase agreement is a, a purchase agreement, right? You have the, the beginning part that says, I'm going to pay you this and you're going to pay me that. And at the closing, I'll deliver you this and you yes. deliver me that. And then you have reps and warranties and you have covenants, then you have indemnities, then you have the real boiler yes. at the back, right? That's an agreement. <laughs> right. And they all look the same. But then depending on the particular right, business the deal, of. is there an earn out? Yes. Uh, what escrows will there be? What are the unique issues where there's going to be specific line item indemnities that have to be provided? Um, is it a deal that has representation and warranty insurance? Uh, you know, yep. it, so so there are cha- you know things that need to be modified that are deal specific, but structurally and the sort of form and the base that you use is is the same deal over deal. I love it. I love it. Now, now that's what keeps you up. So what, what are you, mo- in one word, oh boy, here we go. In one word, <laughs> what are you most excited about? I know, I'll can let I you do, do you can, can I use two words? You can use two words. Uh, trusted advisor. Trusted uh, advisor. I like my clients to feel very comfortable that I have their back. Yes. And when I do, and when I, uh, there's a big issue and I'm able to come up with a creative solution and propose it to the other side and the other side said yeah that that'll work then I'm very happy I feel like I'm adding value I'm getting my client over a hump that um, maybe you know the deal would have fallen apart otherwise and that's my favorite part of right is when they walk away feeling like you had their best interest that the deal wouldn't have gotten done without me or without advice that I provided or um, you know whatever just just they feel like I represented them to the extent they were hopeful that I would. That's that is that one. is a great a great way to walk away from a deal, right? Or That's at the ideal. end of the deal, not walk away, but <laughs> end a, su- a successful deal. That's ideal. Yes. So that is that is fantastic. Well, Jennifer Curtis of Winston Strawn, thank you so much for joining me today. My pleasure. I love listening to you talk about sort of how the industry's changed, you know, thinking about data privacy, what different industries could look like, right? Thinking about a lot of the pre-transactional planning, which is where sort of we get involved in helping think through all of that. And then, you know, taking away from it the idea that if you are seen, because this I feel very similarly, right? If you're seen as the trusted advisor to your client, that's a that's a win, right? That's 100 That's the check mark, which which is which is amazing, excellent. So if you'd like to speak with me or Jen or anybody in my family engagement team or one of our senior investment strategists about you know thinking about that pre-transaction planning on a deal or anything that you're that you're looking to do to get a deal done, you can reach me at emily.grace@bernstein.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you again soon. Have a great day.